That was a really clear good morning. Um, if you uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis 2. If you don't, you can turn the Pew Bible to page about 3, and you'll be at Genesis 2. If you're new, we're doing a series called The Gospel Through the Bible, and it's the point is to see the gospel that is the good news about Jesus all the way through the Old Testament and New Testament, so that the, the, the Bible is kind of a big book that can confuse people. So if you're new to the Bible, the idea of this series is to sort of bring it all together for you and kind of get you kind of set in it. And for a lot of us who've been in church for a long time, we've, we've never looked through the Bible. We, we go from book to book and study book to book, but we don't spend time putting the whole thing together and seeing God's story of salvation all the way through it and seeing how Jesus is the center of the story. And I spent about 20 minutes of the first part of my sermon last week talking about that. So if you want to know more, the internet can educate you on that if you go to our website. I'm going to start reading Genesis 2 in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it, take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The word of the Lord. I said last week, that in the early chapters of Genesis especially, there's all kinds of questions we would like to ask about where it came from and what, how does this relate to science and all those kinds of things. And I said last week that we have a blog called Engage and Equip. It's hpcmadison.org. And we have some, I have a couple of blog posts up there, including a few talks on those questions, because the focus of this series is this question of seeing Christ and seeing the gospel through the whole Bible. So that's what I'm going to focus on. I'm not going to talk about the sociology of gender, or what marriage means, or any of that stuff. And I'm not going to talk about the scientific questions from Genesis 1, or how these two creation narratives work together, or whatever. None of that's the point. Those are all fun discussions, important ones even. Not the point of this morning, right? Um, so when, I, when I'm allowed to preach 90-minute messages, I'll cover all that stuff, okay? So... A few, a few years back here, Cracked.com did an article called the, the Six Stupidest Things Ever Done with Historic Treasures. Now, kids, you're not supposed to say stupid. That's just what they actually was named, so that's why I said it. But they should have said the dumbest things ever done with historic treasures. Um, 
The 21st president of the United States, Chester Arthur, when he was elected to the White House and he entered the White House, he found it insufficiently fancy. These are the years 1880 to 1885. And so he decided that the appropriate thing to do with the contents of the White House was to sell them in a yard sale in the White House lawn. Countless American historical treasures were sold for pennies on the dollar so that he could bring in all the rad fancies of the 1880s, which, in his defense, included some of the most important fashion supplements in American history. The frilly jacket, the, uh, the inverted goatee, and all of our favorites, the uh, dresses that make women's behinds look abnormally large. One of the other ones was in Britain some time ago, there were engineers that were doing some paving. And in order to cut some costs, and instead of getting stone from the quarry, they actually took some of the stones of Stonehenge. They ground them up, and they made them into roads. Now, I'm not a fan of Druid theology, but that's just downright dumb, right? Um, in the Middle Ages, people didn't just write stuff. It took forever to write everything, but a lot of the manuscripts that were made were made by monks who spent hours and hours and hours creating them. So there are not that many left, but those manuscripts that do exist that are on parchments are priceless historical documents and often incredibly beautiful works of art. Um, However, there was a a fairly wealthy gentleman um, who did not feel like the inside of his mansion was sufficiently fancy, like our 21st president, and decided that it would be a good idea to get his hands on some of these priceless medieval manuscripts and turn them into lampshades. And so that's what he did. Yeah. We'll just leave that there. It's California. Um, That was for you, Adam. Okay, uh, and then maybe the best well-known one is that in the 17th century, Athens was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. And in 1697, the Ottomans found themselves at war with the Venetians. And they were fighting over the city of Athens, and they realized that in order to have tactical superiority, they were going to have to have an ammo dump in the city of Athens, but they had to have it in a place where Venetian artillery couldn't hit it and blow it up, right? It's all gunpowder. So they thought, what we need is we need it in a very high location. And there is a high location in the city of Athens called the... Acropolis, And on the Acropolis was a building that had stood there for 2,000 years and was virtually intact, called the Parthenon, right? And so the Ottomans decided it's got a roof. The gunpowder won't get wet. It's on the highest place in the city. Let's pack the Parthenon with gunpowder. And so that's what they did. They packed the Parthenon with gunpowder. And you can tell how this story ends. A few enterprising Venetians with a couple of torches— threw him into the Parthenon and blew that thing sky high so that all that's left is a shell of what was once there. I stole almost, I stole like half the sermon from a talk my brother did because he and I, he and I take this a little personally because we partly exist because of the Parthenon. My, my mom and dad had their first kiss there, which would be romantic if she hadn't been dating somebody else. <laughs> and you wonder why I'm like this. No, Actually, it was all actually really above board, but that's a funny joke, right? And you get to see my dad's sideburns, so there. The thing that unites all of those stories together, and that makes it relevant to Genesis 2, is that all of those stories are stories of misassessed value. People did idiotic things with priceless treasures because they didn't really understand or take into account what they had. And because they didn't understand what they had, they used things for completely inappropriate purposes and ended up, in most cases, destroying them and becoming silly people in the process. And the reason why that matters for us is that you, every single day, are in the exact same position as those people. You have something enormously valuable at your fingertips— it actually includes your fingertips, that you are appropriating for some purpose every single day. And you are around other things every single day that are of similar value. In every decision you make, in every action you take, in every choice, you are assigning value and dignity and purpose to those things. And we are all in danger of being added to the crack.com list for misassessing value. This passage of Scripture focuses—you see, last week I said, listen, whenever we start a book, 
one of the first things that happens is characters get introduced, right? Remember that? If you were here? And so we, you got to expect, in the first, the three big characters in the Bible get introduced in Genesis 1 and 2. God, humans, creation, right? And so chapter 1 spends a lot of time characterizing God. God is sovereign. God is good and wholesome in his creation. God glorifies himself through the created order and through the image of God and people. Number two is the characterization of human beings. What is a human being? Last week, the question was, was who do we think we're dealing with? Who's character number one? But this week is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? That's not just a song for Spice Girl lyrics. That's also a question that Immanuel Kant said was the central question for all of every human being. Who am I? What am I? Right? And a slightly less known set of philosophers, uh, Mumford and Sons, who in one of their songs um, had these lyrics. And this is actually the, like the climactic bridge of the song. Because I need freedom now, and I need to know how to live my life as it was meant to be. Because freedom by itself can be used for anything. Freedom is just freedom. Only when freedom is put together with dignity and purpose do you get nobility. We don't just need freedom. We need to know what our life is for and what we mean and the dignity attached to us. Otherwise, we're going to live our lives basically packing our Parthenons with gunpowder. I thought that was better than saying we become lampshades because it has other connotations. What you think about purpose and dignity is going to be connected to what you think the image of God means if you're a Christian. How you understand this concept of the image of God is going to define most of what you think about purpose and dignity and meaning for human life. And it's going to affect the way you treat yourself. It's going to what you think you're for and how you treat everybody else and what you think they're for. So if you look for a second, I don't know if I have it. Let me see if I have a slide of this. No, I don't have a slide of that. There's, um, there are a few verses in the early part of Genesis that focus on this idea of the image of God. For example, verse chapter 1, 26 and 27. God said, let's, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock. And then verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's kind of repetitive, isn't it? In fact, it's the most repeated thing in terms of a specific event in Genesis 1. Then in Genesis chapter 5, the first, um, the, the first set of generations, it starts out with Adam and it says this, This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man or mankind. So again, it refers to the beginning of the line of human beings, and God says that they're made in my likeness. And then after the fall, when things um, are kind of going haywire, he says to Noah, so this is before Abraham, before the law of Moses, he, he institutes the death penalty for killing people. He says, anytime a person kills another person, they're to be killed. And, and the reason he gives it, he, sa he says this in Genesis 9, 6, he says, whoever sheds the blood of a man— there, this, the, that refers to humanity. Any human, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. Now, people have argued throughout the centuries of what does it mean? What does it actually mean that we're in the image of God? And um, a lot of the church fathers and people early in the church kind of went the Aristotle route, right? Aristotle's like, well, what's different between us and the other animals? There's all these animals, but we're the what? The—remember this from Western Civ? We, they don't teach Western Civ anymore, right? We're the rational animal. Remember that from Western Civ? The rational animal. The thing that's different about us is we're thinkers. We're rational, right? And because we're rational, in theory, we can think beyond our own immediate self-interest, and so we can be moral, so we're a rational and moral creature. That's what's different from the rest of creation. That must be the image of God. Well, the Bible doesn't actually say that anywhere. I think those are included, or maybe they're implications of the image of God. Um, another theologian, um, a few others, but the one probably most famous who's writing now is a guy named Wayne Grudem. And he basically argues the image of God is if you read the whole Bible, you learn a bunch of stuff about God, and you learn a bunch of stuff about people. And to the extent to which those things are the same, we are like God, and we image God. Now, that's actually a pretty logical way of doing it. It's also an extremely tedious way of doing it, right? You've got to study the whole Bible to get a sense of what that is. But whenever we're studying a passage of any text, but especially the Bible, 
the first question to ask is, well, what does this text say? Are there clues right here in this passage that tells us what God means by created in his image? And I think that there are. And there's probably 15, but because we have pew seating and it's not theater style and we're only going to do three, okay? The first one is how we are made. Sorry, hold on, I'm going the wrong way. How we are made shows the dignity of the image. How we're made. The way human beings are made shows the dignity of the image. That is that we are the only creatures in creation that we know about that image God in the empirical physical world. The, the Bible doesn't actually tell us anywhere that we're better than angels. Hebrews says that Jesus is better than angels. But it doesn't tell us anywhere we are. And it doesn't actually tell us anywhere that angels aren't created in the image of God. They probably are. The difference, the reason we're the sort of crowning of physical creation is because we are the only creatures that inhabit the physical world that also image God. And so God's image can be demonstrated and seen through us in the physical world. That's the difference between us and the angels. They don't spend most of their time being corporeal. We don't know anything else. We're the only creature that we know about in the physical created world that bears the image of God. And in that sense, we're unique. We inhabit both spheres. We are both inherently spiritual beings and inherently physical beings. And we bear the image of God. And we're the only creatures we know about that are all three. And that's apparently really important to God. And so it should be really important to us. You can see this in the creation of Adam, right? Well, how does Adam get created? There's two steps, right? He fashions Adam out of the, the dirt, right? And then he breathes into him the breath of life, right? And he becomes a living being, all of him. The dirt part and the breath part, right? And so Adam is essentially nothing, right? He's created out of dirt. You go to funeral service even now. At the outdoor funeral service, I'll read something out of the Book of Common Prayer that says, dust to dust. Back to the earth you go. That is, there's a sense to which we're like the—remember the, the psalm? The, the grass withers and the flowers of the fade, but it's the word of the Lord that stands forever, not us. We're passing creatures. We're dust. In fact, in Genesis 3, after Adam sins, God says to him, out of dust you're created, and to dust, to the ground you will return. In fact, Adam's name, Adam, that's not a name. That's just the Hebrew word pulled into English, Adam. That comes from the word adama, which is the word for ground or dirt. Adam means the dirt one. That's what human means. But he has put into him the breath of life, the very breath and spirit of God, in a way that that doesn't seem to be true of the other living creatures. There's this, there's, there's way he, he possesses something of the life of God, though he's made out of dirt. And so Adam is infinitely nothing— He's the lowest of nothing. He's dust, and yet infinitely valuable, bearing the very breath of God. He stands with the image of God in both spheres, nothing but dirt in the physical world, but imbued with the very spirit of God to show the image of God in the world in which he lives. The way that we're made demonstrates the dignity of the image, but also the profound humility that we should have. One of the things that um, you all often hear about in like university classes when people talk about the Bible's literature is the competing creation myths. Have you heard these? The competing creation myths? One of the ones from this period is the Babylonian creation myth of Marduk. Have you heard that one? It's a great one. There, eventually HBO will do it. Okay, so just wait. Um, and so the story of the Babylonian gods is there's a couple of gods and they decide to have some babies and they end up having enough babies that they get really loud and annoying, which now I have four kids, I understand, and he wanted to kill them. So that I also understand at times, at times. Um, the difference between me and he is he decided to kill them. And so he puts together this basically this army of dragons and monsters and stuff. And, but meanwhile, because this sort of tawdry affair he had had, um, these other two gods had had, they'd produced this like big, massive, strong, like— tough god Marduk, who's like five tiers down on the gods level, but he's like a really tough god. And so all the other kid gods that are going to get killed realize that there's this like army of dragons coming to kill them. And so they go to Marduk and they say, Marduk, listen, if you bail us out, like if you kill everyone, um, 
you can be, he's like, look, if I kill everyone, I get to be God. I get to be the God most high. And they're like, no problem. If you save us, no problem. So Marduk like opens up a six pack of butt whooping on all these dragons and creatures and all this stuff. And he wipes them all out, kills his fa- kills everybody, right? All the gods he doesn't kill, he enslaves to work the earth, right? And they become the slave race that he has his foot on their neck. Eventually they rebel and he kills all of them and makes humans to replace the god slave race because the earth has to be worked for the good of the gods, right? So do you see the story of human dignity there? You are the product of a, of a, of a world in which Rape, incest, treason, tawdry affairs, war, killing has produced a world in which you are lower than the slave race of gods, only there for the basic usefulness of the gods to use up your skills and life until you go back to the dirt. Now, in one sense, we, you know, you laugh at that and you're like, okay, that's, that's really something. On another level, if we didn't know anything about the Bible, if we didn't know anything about God, what would, what would we write for a creation story? If we had to make it up, like there's no revelation— and our kids were like, how do we get here? We're like, we probably ought to make something up. Uh, so, and we looked at the real world the way it really is. And we decided to say, if we're like this, what are the gods probably like? Is it any wonder that you can go all across the world in different societies, anthropologically separated from each other, and the gods are always wicked and mean? And if there are good gods, those good gods are usually fighting with or overpowered by evil gods. What? That make, does that make perfect sense? It makes perfect sense. Because that's what we do to each other. We're in, we maybe, maybe weren't created the sons of Marduk, but we did a pretty, pretty good job of becoming the sons of Marduk. And if you think about the narrative that we live under in modern secular culture, it's very similar. I mean, what's the creation story for you in modern secular culture? Why are you here? You're here because the genetics of your ancestors got passed on because they were the best rapers and pillagers of other human societies that weren't strong enough to fight them off. That's why we're here. That's why you and I are here. Now, that's not to say a lot of being the sons of Marduk hasn't happened since creation. But Genesis 2 stands as a statement that that wasn't what happened at creation. Creation did not start as a word of the gods. It started with God, who was a good, creative, wholesome God, creating a sub-region he would give his creational authority to so that we could work out his greater work in the world he gave us. It was we could be like him. We could, we could image God in the world. And then later on, that degraded And we began to look more like the sons of Marduk than the sons of God. But that doesn't take away the way we started. No matter what's happened in our family line, no matter what's happening in your family line right now, no matter what your parents were like, your fathers were like, what economic class you've been in, what educational, how you've grown up, what your past is, all that stuff. You may have been a son of Marduk your whole life. But that's not what you were created as. There's a principle in you, a genetic in you, an identity in you. It may be very deep at this point. But on some level, down at the bottom, you are the son of Adam. Not the son of Marduk. And it may be very deep, but it's there. And that's who you are. And no matter how undignified you have lived, you possess the dignity of a son of Adam. Let's go on to the second one. What we were made for gives purpose. What we were made for gives purpose. If we were made on purpose, we were made for a purpose and with purpose. I lifted that out of my brother's talk. Listen to this quote from that talk. The narrative of much of the university is that we are trying to scrape together the illusion of a purposeful existence from an accidental and purposeless origin. Genesis 1 says... No way. You were made on purpose, and so you were made for a purpose. If you think about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and what human beings were created for, it tells us. In Genesis 1, you get what theologians have called over the years the creation mandate. 
The mandate that came to human beings through creation. So there's those two verses, 26 and 27, that we were made in the image of God. And then 28 gives the creation mandate. He turns to humans, he says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So there's three parts of the creation mandate. Fill, subdue, and rule. That is, that, w- that whatever you believe about when death enters in, there is something, there's a reality before sin, death, and hell in which the earth isn't all it can be yet. God has created the earth. He's done a lot, but he, he creates these human beings and he says, listen, you're not omnipresent like me. You're, you can't be everywhere present at the same time, see everything and act everywhere at the same time. So you're going to have to multiply yourselves in order to do what I'm telling you. So I want you to marry each other and create these things called families, and I want you to multiply and fill the earth. Now, while you're doing that, you're going to do the work of subduing the earth, because the earth isn't all it can be. It's not under your rule, and as long as it's not under your rule, it's not completely under my rule. So you're going to go out and you're going to subjugate the earth under your rule, and then when you've done so, you're going to rule the earth. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to rule the earth by filling it, subduing it, and then ruling it. Now, there's a lot of people that really struggle with that because that sounds to them like a kind of degradational dominion. Like, that human beings have the right to do whatever they want in the world because God gave it to us, and we can destroy it, we can wreck it, we can burn it, we can do whatever we want with it. That is not what this passage says. Does that, is that what God does to us? And what God does to his own creation? No, and if he gives us vice regency, does he expect us to act the opposite of him? Of course not. In Ezekiel, there's this place where um, Israel, God's people, have had these shepherds, basically the priests and pastors. And he, there's this point where um, God tells Ezekiel, I'm going to kill all of them. All the priests and pastors, I'm going to kill them all. And Ezekiel's like, okay, what? Okay, maybe you could tell me something about why so I could give him a little prophetic oracle, right? And he says, here's why. Because they're like shepherds over a group of sheep. And they shear the sheep's wool off of them, and they milk them for their milk, and they kill them for their meat. But the sheep, they don't take care of. They take from the sheep, but the sheep don't flourish under their care. So do shepherds eat some of the sheep? Of course they do. Of course they do. Do they shear the sheep for wool? Of course they do. Do they, do they milk them for their milk? Of course they do. But is the flock supposed to grow and flourish under their care? Yes. And what he's saying is, as human beings were meant to go out and take dominion over the world, creation was going to flourish, that, that the humans were going to be pulled out of creation, potential that was there that was not yet taken out of it, in a way that all of creation would flourish, humanity would flourish, and so God's glory would be imaged in the world in a way that was beautiful and good, and not degrading or destructive. We were meant to be good rulers— over the earth, causing nature and creatures to flourish under our care. Are we going to use them? Does it mean we all have to be vegetarians? Well, you can make an argument at this point. We were, because he says, I give you all the fruit-bearing trees. And then after he says, I give you all the animals. But, but regardless of that, the point is, everything's supposed to flourish under our care. And so however we look at the creation mandate now, we should recognize that. But that doesn't take away from the fact we are supposed to rule it. That's purpose. <laughs> it's kind of a big purpose. If you go to Genesis 2, God creates this garden, right? And he creates these trees, and it's this beautiful place, and there's a river flowing through it. And it says that he—he cre- he says, it says the reason there was no shrub of the field or plant of the field yet was that God hadn't sent rain, and there was no man to work it yet. Right? He's saying, he's saying before human beings, there was no agriculture. There was nobody to work anything. There was no husbandry. You could create an apple tree, but there was no man to prune it. You could have a field where you could grow grain, but there was no person to weed it and plant it. There's a kind of husbandry, as it was always called, that human beings were supposed to exert on the earth so the earth could fully flourish. It was meant to be this symbiotic relationship that you see all over nature, where one creature does something for each other and they both flourish— And it says, in verses 15 and 17, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. For what reason? See, the paintings are always him laying around under fruit trees eating oranges, right? 
Like it's just like you, you picture the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the place where the man didn't have to do anything. All, he got the remote all the time. He didn't have to do anything. There was nothing to nag him about, right? That's not what the Garden of Eden was. It was a place created for the man and the woman to exert work and to bring out of creation what was there. God created a garden that needed to be gardened from the very beginning. And the the language for this, theologically, is we call this a pre-fall ordinance. That is, before the fall, before sin entered the world, when everything was still the way it was supposed to be, what existed? Because whatever existed isn't the product of sin, it's the product of the way God made things. And you see, what this this tells us is that work— pre-exists the fall. Work is dignified and good, and it's meant to bring purpose. When the fall happens and humanity receives the curse, the curse says work is now going to be a burden. So you see, work is similar to us as human beings. We're created in God's image, but we're fallen, and the image is broken. We're kind of this in-between creature, and the fallenness hurts the image, but the image and dignity is still there. See, work is like that. Work is this composite thing. It's created with this great dignity. It's been affected by the curse of the fall. It's been made tedious for us. But if you understand that work is a pre-fall ordinance, then what that means is that work is inherently purposeful and therefore dignifying. And that idea unites the maid with the governor all the way through. It dignifies all meaningful work that aids human flourishing. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about this, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't want to be a house cleaner, right? People, you know, my wife, my wife, she, I don't think this will hurt her feelings. She's said this many times in the company of others. Um, you know, I would, I'd love to be able to just afford to get somebody to clean my house for me. And I don't begrudge anybody that. But here's the reality. If we don't clean, what's going to happen to all of us? If nobody cleans ever, what happens? We die, Right? We, eventually, this gets, it gets dirty, then it gets filthy, then it gets putrid, then we die, right? I mean, we die. Somebody has to do that work, right? I mean, somebody has to come and get your garbage. Now, you might not want that job, but if somebody doesn't do that, what happens to us all? Our yards become landfills and bad things, right? And you see, somebody is meant to do this work. You see, most, the reason why it's important for you to understand the importance of the creation mandate that includes work is that's what you spend most of your time doing. Christians have received the creation mandate and the redemption mandate, right? Lead as many people as we can to Jesus. But we've also received the creation mandate. Work the ground. Multiply, subdue the earth, and rule over it. And what is the, what's the redemption mandate for? It's to lead us back to the creation mandate. To have a right relationship with God, a right relationship with each other, and a right relationship with creation so that we can fulfill rightly the creation mandate. What do you think we're going to be doing in heaven forever? Do you think it's really going to be all one big sing-along the whole time? It might be. I mean, John's like, yes. (laughs) But for those of you that don't like that imagery, I think there'll be a whole lot of singing in heaven. But there's also a city of God in heaven. There's, there's, a, there's an orchard in heaven. There are rivers in heaven. There, and I don't know how things degrade or anything like that, but if God gave work before the fall, I think it's going to be work in heaven. I think I'm going to have to retrain. But, you know, some of you may not. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like. But I, don't, I think there'll be work forever. The difference is the curse will be removed from it. The curse didn't exist when Adam received it, and the curse will not exist when we do it forever. The thing that makes work difficult for us now and bad for us now is because we think we're working like dogs, right? We feel like we're working like dogs, like, we're, like work is just this oppression. And in some ways it is in the sense that work has received a curse when we get to Genesis 3. But when we work, we don't work like dogs. We work like God. The theme in Genesis 1 and 2 is in Genesis 1, God works. And then in day 7, what does he do? It says rested, but that word means the exact same thing as ceased. On day 7, God stops working. Well, that's interesting because what did he create on on day 6? Humans, right? And why did he create the humans? So that they could work 
There's nothing left for God to do. God did what he wanted to do. He made the workers. Now they work. We, we do what God does. And one of the main ways we do that is by working. And most of us spend a whole lot more time living out the creation mandate than the redemption mandate. We spend our whole lives working, living out the creation mandate, and whenever we can, we tell people that Jesus has come to draw them back to the true creation mandate, that he will ultimately fulfill in the new city of God. We tell them about Jesus. We're doing that as we go along doing the creation mandate. When you're working, you are serving God. That does not say, mean you don't need to do the redemption mandate. The redemption mandate is there. It's important. And some of us spend all—our creation mandate is the redemption mandate. There's a few of us that, you know, we don't have to split the two up. But for most of us, we spend most of our time doing the creation mandate. And along the way, we try to draw other people in through the redemption mandate of Jesus, what we call the Great Commission. Let me say just a couple things about this. If you haven't picked a job yet, or if the wonderful economic situation in which we live is causing you to retrain, you know, there's more to tell people about that than just do what you love or do what you can make some money doing. I mean, think about what are you going to tell your kid when they're 17? Or what are you going to tell your spouse? You're like, hey, I'm thinking about switching careers. Most people say one of two things. Do what you love, don't worry about the money, or do, do what you can do to make some money and pay the bills, right? There's another thing to say. What can you do that you could actually be good at that fulfills the creation mandate? Where you can go into the world as it is and increase the flourishing of of people and of creation in a way that glorifies God. And there are, are hundreds of ways to do that. And most occupations can be done in such a way that they do remain profitable and still Our focus and our purpose isn't just to make money, but is also to create flourishing. And oftentimes, there are a lot of things that actually can be done more profitably if our real focus is on causing human flourishing, glorifying God, and trying to cause the the flourishing of the creation. And some of the jobs that we tend to despise the most are the jobs with the most potential for that, but that are the most ugly when they're degraded from that. Like, for example, being a senator or something. Sorry, is that a joke? I was in earnest. Okay. It also changes the goals of your work, but I'm not going to spend any time on that right now. The last thing we should talk about is um, who we are has, has made— uh, who, uh, sorry, who we are made for gives meaning to the image. Who we're made for gives meaning. One of the things that doesn't seem to be true of the other critters in creation is human beings are created very specifically to be in relationship— to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with other human beings, and to be in relationship with creation. Now, those relationships are very different relationships. But if you read Genesis 1 and 2 carefully, you're going to get the sense of, we're just in relationships with stuff. For example, if you look at Adam's relationship with God, and then Eve's relationship with God in the end of 2 in chapter 3, it's very clear that they have a pretty direct relationship with God. I mean, God and Adam are naming animals, and then God's like, dude, you surely shouldn't be alone. We need to do something about that. And then he makes the woman, and and Adam's like, oh, this is perfect. Who's he saying that to? He's singing. He bursts out in a song. He's talking to God about this woman that he's brought to him and telling, you know, it's not like, oh, you're going to be called woman. He says, she's going to be called woman, right? He's, he's, this is his last naming, right? It says in, in Genesis 2 that all the animals, whatever he said, that got to be the name. Apparently, when he told the woman she'd be called woman, apparently that was up for debate. Those of us who are married know why that is, right? But the, the idea is, is he was naming it. He was talking to God. He was glad about it. He related to God. And then in chapter 3, it's a weird thing when they hear God walking through the garden in the, still, in, the, in the cool of the day, and they're hiding. That's not normal. Why? Because normally they didn't hide. But God did walk through the garden in the still of the day, and they interacted because they had a relationship. Here's what this means. There's a, there's a longing in us that we either divert ourselves from or we don't. There are, especially now with the technologies we have, there are a thousand ways to divert yourself from it so you don't feel it. But at bottom, one of the greatest longings of our heart is to be related to God. God's absence, his apparent hiddenness, is something that really, really bothers us. Most people who don't believe in God, that's one of the reasons. Well, why isn't he here? He should be here. If God was here, if, you know, if God was real, he should say something. He should appear. Um, and even those of us who are Christians, I, there's on some level, 
I bet most of us thought when we believed in Jesus, there was going to be more palpable presence. And it bothers us that God seems so hidden. Now, that is either a reason to pitch Christianity or a reason to believe in Genesis 2 and 3. That we work, we were not created to be separated from God. We were not created for that. We were created for a direct relationship with God. We were made to, to feel God's presence, to know his presence, to see his presence, to experience his presence in a way we flatly do not right now. And it grates on us, and it hurts us, and there's internal emotional anguish, and it causes us to wonder if we should even believe. And you can use that as an argument for atheism. It is just as straightforwardly an argument that the Bible is absolutely right about what we are. We are creatures meant to experience God, and therefore in its absence we are crushed by its longing. And there's a partial solution for this in God's revelation of Scripture, in God's revealing himself in Jesus Christ, and in what the Bible calls the first fruits of the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's probably lots of people here who can say, I've experienced God. Intermittently, here and there, I feel it. I can sense it. It's not self-interpreting, but I, 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 I know God was involved in this. I know he was there. I felt this, or I knew this, and I think that was God, and I, I feel like God has been present in my life. That's all true, and the Bible speaks to that. That does happen. But not nearly as much as most of us would like. And the reason for that is we were made— we were made for a relationship with God and not just— See, so many preachers tell people, you were made for a relationship with God, so believe in Jesus, and you'll have that relationship to God, and you'll be fulfilled. And that is bullcrap. There is a huge sense of fulfillment that comes from believing in Jesus. And when we worship, we rebel against the longing in our heart, knowing that God is there and his separation from us is purposeful and meaningful and necessary for the era of redemption and the story that he's bringing through so that he can redeem as many people as possible because his presence kills sinners. And it is an act of grace to withdraw through the process of redemption. And we recognize that. But when we worship, it's not because we feel all the time this sweet presence of Jesus. It's because we say, forget you to the world that pulls us back to accept that the longing ought to destroy our faith. We say, no. No. I don't have all that I want. It's not all the fulfillment in the world. But, but I am fulfilled because I believe Jesus is real. I have felt things at times that I think were me experiencing him. And I believe that the day is coming when Genesis 22 will be fulfilled, where the city of God will be united to the recreated earth. And God will say, now the dwelling place of God is with men. We need to believe in the presence of God. I'm, I want the presence of the Holy Spirit. We should all be praying for that. We should ask God to show himself to us, to reveal himself to us, to do something that we can feel. Absolutely. But don't forget that the story tells us we were made for something we don't have, and that longing points us to the one we should be always seeking. The second thing is, people, we, we were not meant to be alone. He makes a man. And it, the, God did not say men shouldn't be alone because we're so stinking absent-minded. He said men shouldn't be alone because human beings shouldn't be alone. And he created the woman for a perfect complementarity. And he, the first way he created for humans not to be alone is a family. Because we are going to multiply in the earth and fill it. And he created these families, and, and he created them to be procreative even. And, he, and that was the plan number one. But that's not the only plan. There's a bigger point here, and that is that people aren't meant to be alone. I mean, what did Jesus leave behind as the only physical thing he left behind in the world? I mean, he didn't leave. Wouldn't it be great if he would have left his resurrected self behind? I mean, honestly, why did the ascension have to happen 40 days after he was raised? Now, on one level, it's because— the one Jesus went up, and the Holy Spirit came, and Jesusified all believers, right? And, and that, he said that wasn't going to happen until he went up. But why couldn't both have happened, right? I mean, wouldn't it be great if, like, every six weeks I was going to, like, Geneva, Switzerland to have, like, the meetings with all the pastors of, like, the risen Jesus, and Jesus was going to be like, okay, here's what we're doing this time, right? And we all had a little marching order sheet. It would be fabulous, right? But he didn't do that. He left, and the only physical representation of his presence he left was a community. 
he left a community of people. And it says in, in Acts 2 that they were so made into a community, they shared their physical belongings, they sold stuff to take care of each other's needs. This was not a, like, oh, we go to church one hour a week. This is a group of people who saw life as something that was done together because they witnessed to Jesus individually and as a community of people because the interrelatedness of our dignity and meaning and purpose is part of what mirrors and images God. It's part of the image. It's part of the meaning of the image, and it's what shows people what God is like. Remember, we are the only religion in the world that believes that God is one in essence and three in persons. That is, there is one God in interpersonal loving unity in relationship with himself. Is it any wonder that he would create a group of people to mirror himself that were in intercommunal love with each other whose, whose personhood and identity was wrapped up in the oneness of the one Christ? It's the same dynamic. And he's also put us in relationship with all of creation. There, there, is, there is a granola, fruits, and nuts Christianity, okay? There is a part of Christianity where we go out and commune with nature and all that kind of stuff. You can do that. Now, it, it can be taken to really silly extremes and all that. I totally agree. But listen, the, the connectedness to the natural world, don't, let's not pump that to the New Age people. Or to the people who are, have political leanings of environmentalism. I, I don't think we should do that. God set us about to subdue and to rule creation that it would flourish under our care. That we, yeah, we'd eat of the flock and we would share the sheep and we would use the created order, but that the created order would flourish under our care. We should believe in that. And we should do it in a way that's not fruity, that's solid, but that is loving and emotional. And we should, we should be able to enjoy the sublime of the created world as much as anybody. Not because we've imbued it with some strange New Agey mysticism, but because we love God's creation and we see that it has, it has a recreated importance. I mean, God is not going to throw the world in a trash can. Just as he's going to recreate us into resurrected bodies, Revelation says he's going to recreate the earth. To be our eternal home when heaven and earth are united in the final city of God. This, the third character of the story, the creation, is there at the end. And we will be related to it forever. So let's end with this. Maybe you thought that was the end. One of the things that happens in the next page, the very next page, is the fall. It's next week. And sin comes into the world. And one of the things that happens is the image is broken. There's a degradation of the image. And nobody knows how much or how so or exactly what happened. We just know that by the time you get to Genesis 9, God says it's not gone. Because if you kill somebody, your life is forfeit because you killed somebody who bears the image of God. So we still bear the image, we know that. But at the same time, it says in Colossians 3 that one of the things Jesus does when he comes is he remakes the image. Right? So there's a degradation, a bentness, a brokenness to the image, and, and, but yet it's still there. The dignity, the purpose, the meaning is still there. And when Jesus comes in, what he does is he recreates the image. Um, there's these two verses that talk about this. In Colossians 1.15 it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In Hebrews 1.3 it says, The Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That is, Jesus comes to be the image so that we can see it. Because see, when you look at me, you don't really know what's the image and what's sin. It's really hard to sort that out, isn't it? And when I see you, it's the same problem. And so we need an image to look at to say, oh, that's the image. And then I can look at me or I can look at you and I can say, okay, I see it. And let me call that thing out of you and let me not call that other thing out of you, but help you put it to death. And so Jesus comes to be the image and then to die and rise so that he can remake the image in you and me. One of my favorite church fathers who's dead that nobody's heard of is a, a guy named Athanasius. He's from the fourth century. And he, he, he told it this way in a book called On the Incarnation. He said, imagine a picture of a person that kind of looked like everybody at the same time. Like everybody could look at it and kind of see themselves in it. But if you knew the painter, you would know that ultimately the painting was a self-portrait. But all of humanity could come to it and see it and see something of themselves when they, they looked at the painting. And so it was a great treasure to all people. 
But a day came when there was a great flood and the, and the treasures of the museum were destroyed and the painting was marred and the, the canvas was ripped and it was ultimately destroyed. And so people came and they put it back together the best that they could. They, they resealed the canvas and they, they did all that. And you could see a little bit of the old painting, but not enough to see yourself in it anymore and not enough to glory in the painting. He said, what would be necessary to redeem? He said, what would have to happen is the artist would have to come and repaint it. He would have to repaint the new image over the, degrada- the degraded, the broken old image and repaint his image himself so that other people could then re-see the reflection in the painting. You see, you can't really understand what Jesus has come to do until you understand Genesis 2. Until you understand the centrality of the concept of the image of God in the creation mandate. Until you understand the purpose, the meaning, and the dignity with which human beings were created. That we're all sons of Adam and Eve, not sons of Marduk. That if we don't know this, if we don't realize this, we will pack our lives with gunpowder like it's the Parthenon. We'll grind up the stone hinge. We'll make lampshades out of priceless. We'll, we'll, make, we'll make a yard sale of the White House. I mean, that's what we will do with our lives because we will misassess the value and we will never fully understand what Jesus has come to do. We won't understand what he is and how deep a thing it is he's come to do. But when you understand this part of the story, what you are, that you're made in the image of God and that from that comes meaning and dignity and purpose. And that meaning and dignity and purpose can only be fully recreated and repainted and remade to free you into your creation mandate when you come to Jesus and Christ through the Spirit and through his work and through his community remakes the image in you and sends you out into his creation mandate and his redemption mandate in this community called the church that reflects his image individually and together. Until you get that, you can't see it. But when you do, you might see something you've never seen before, and you may see the worth of the Savior like you haven't seen before. And if you do, you should come to him. You should believe in him. You should trust him. You should seek him. You should receive him. You should be baptized into his name. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the fact of our creation in your image. And we pray that you'd help us to receive it, to receive the dignity we're meant to live with. Whatever our past, whatever's gone before us, we pray that you would remake us as the original sons of Adam in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, it says in Romans. We pray that you do that work. We want to be... We want to do your work after you. We want to work like you worked. We want to grow. We want to rule. We want to subdue beautifully. We want that which we work on, that which we exert husbandry and wifery on. We want it to flourish. And we want to draw other people back to this thing we were made for. And we pray also that you'd help us all to embrace our work the extent to which it's not a direct outworking of the redemption mandate, help us to see how important it is as an outworking of the creation mandate, that we're still working like you work. And help people to see that and to come back to the creation mandate and in so doing, come to Jesus. Please pour out your spirit on us to help us see it.